HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Karen McNeil, author of The Wine Bible. We'll talk to Karen about her journey in life and wine and her book, The Wine Bible. I'm Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Karen McNeil is the multi-award winning author of the Wine Bible, receiving the James Beard Award for Outstanding Wine and Spirits Professional of the Year, among many other awards. Karen has done a series on PBS, contributed to the Today Show, the New York Times, Food and Wine, Savor, and Town and Country, to name a few. Karen is Chairwoman Emeritus of the Rudd Center for Professional Wine Studies at the Culinary Institute of America in Napa, California. She is also a sought-after consultant and creates wine seminars for corporate clients. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Karen. Thanks, Sam. Karen, I just want our audience to know Karen's calling us from California, Napa, California, Karen? Right, from the very wet Napa Valley right now. The whole West Coast has sort of been suffering from rain, something we're very used to. Tell me exactly where you are. So 
the little village in the center of the Napa Valley is called St. Helena. Okay. Population, about 2,000. And I'm right in the center of St. Helena. So that's north, and it's a very cool little town with restaurants and schools and bars and everything, right? Yep, even even ten year olds uh, know how to taste wine here. Right, about everybody's in the wine business. Right. All right. So, I want you to set up who you are, and the way I want you to do that, and I want you to weave in and out any way that you want. Is I want you to tell us about your journey in life and in wine, and I think they go hand in hand. And how that got you to the book, which was a big project in your life, and how it got to where you are today. So take me through this journey. Oh, Sam, that's a huge question. Well, you can't take forever, and hopefully <laughs> right. you've done it enough where you could leave the boring parts out and accentuate, you know, the good ones. Right. But, you know, I'm interested in, you know, I know, you were, I know you're from the East Coast. I know you were in New York. You know, walk me through that part because that's right. when everything began. So I did begin in New York City um, in the 1970s. And in the 1970s in New York City, there were almost no women in the wine business. Um, certainly there were no women uh, who were uh, prominent authorities on wine. Maybe, maybe one, maybe Barbara Ensrud wrote a, a weekly column for the New York Post. But it was um, it was a very difficult era for for wine in the United States. There were essentially no wine classes. Um, there were no wine tastings you could go to to learn about wine. Um, and uh, so, you know, the whole world of wine was controlled by about five men, all of whom, by the way, have been wonderful mentors to me over the years. But what, case, what were their roles? Uh, I was a food writer, were they, and wait, I uh, wrote for a number of well-known magazines, and I also wrote uh, freelance for the New York Times. Right. And the more I wrote about food, the more I realized that what I really loved, what I really wanted to know about, was the whole world of gastronomy, including, of course, beverages. So I wanted to study wine, but there was no way in. Um, and eventually one of these men, one of the big five as I remember them, uh, kind of took pity on me and convinced the others to let me taste with them on the, on the agreement that I would say nothing, that I would be sort of the quiet mouse in the room. And uh, I did that for eight years. I tasted with these guys almost every week the great wines of the world, and was never allowed, quote-unquote, to utter a word. Of course, I was bursting on the inside with questions, right? Why is red wine red? Um, Because all of us on our journey in wine need someone who we can ask those questions to. But I didn't have anyone, and ultimately the Wine Bible um, became my answer um, to to how I remember it felt right. to, to have this very confusing world that no one explained well. And I thought, you know, I, I, will, I will answer these questions myself by writing this book. The first wine Bible took 10 years to write. The second you, you one took started more. when? 
to write the first one? Pardon me? You started to write the first wine Bible, the first edition, what year? In uh, 1992. And it and came out? It was fi- and it was finished in 2001. Now, just go back for one second. The five gentlemen that you were talking about that took you in, these were what? Restaurant owners, sommeliers, distributors? I mean, what was their status? In yeah, the- in those days, you know, there weren't very many um, sommeliers in the United States. The master sommelier organization hadn't yet come. There were sort of old-fashioned French sommeliers right. in the top French restaurants like Lutes, let's say. Right. Um, but, uh, but there weren't the equivalent of modern-day hip young uh, men and women who knew a lot about wine. No, these were, for the most part... Um, either importers or uh, people like Frank Pryle, um, now deceased, who From was the Times, the first. That's right, the first important wine writer for the New York Times. Right. So, you start the book in '92. It takes you ten years. So, besides all that time, those eight years spending tasting wine and learning from those gentlemen. What else was going on to help you put the book together? Were you traveling? Yes. Yeah, so um, at the point that I started to write uh, the Wine Bible, uh, I actually had been to every major wine region in the world. Um, but as I began to, to write the Bible, I revisited uh, most of them. And places like Italy, which are so difficult to understand Italian wine. Easy to love, but hard to understand. Why? Those, oh, those Italians, they're chaotic. You know, they, they invent ideas, and then they change the rules, and then they invent more rules and ideas, and then they don't pay attention so, to So it's either. them. It's them. The French aren't that way. Oh, no, no, no. The French are, no. The French okay. are kind of that way, too. The Germans are reliable, though, I have to say. The right. Germans, once they, they set up a system, the system could be complex, but they will stick to it. But the Italians are everywhere, you know. So uh, Italy, you have, to, you have to do some very deep research for. But you know what I realized, Sam, in all of this um, was that um, – when I tried to read about wine myself, when I was a young woman, when I was in my 20s in the 1970s, um, much of, uh, of there was an emerging style of writing about wine that kind of stripped out history, art, religion, culture, food. Wine writing was very dry in those days. And I think one of the things that, uh, that the Wine Bible kind of changed actually changed the course of wine writing in in the U.S. a bit, um, is that I put all that stuff back in. I, I think wine is most easy to understand and also most fascinating to understand when you, when you read about it and know it through the lens of the culture, the food, the people of a place. Right. So the writers early on were... I guess getting nerdy and just talking about the wine, not yes, not the tour, so. not the people, not the culture. They left yeah. all of that out. It had no passion behind it. 
Well, and the other thing that was very hard is that much of the writing early on was done by uh, by Brits, uh, by people in the UK, who have always been great experts. I mean, as a group, very a lot of the world's wine experts are in Great Britain. The problem with that writing for Americans is that British writing assumes an intimate understanding of European geography. Right. And, you know, and there I was, 26, wondering, Merceau, Montrachet, Macon, I mean, where are these places? Is one inside the other? Is one a subdistrict of the other? Are they in different parts of France? You know, in that, uh, that kind of, all those geographic questions are very hard to get. Uh, early on, unless someone really explains them well. I mean, the average consumer would have no clue because you were wrestling with it. Yeah. So, so that's really a world. You're right. The British were making an assumption that their readers knew a little about what was going on. I think your initial readers, you know, probably needed to be educated. And, and I think the book does a good job with that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, all right. So a, a decent amount of traveling. Just go back for a second. At, at some point, and you may have mentioned it, but it didn't seem clear to me. At some point, you woke up or it hit you in the head that you have to write this book. How did Yes. Well, the, it, it was really kind of a funny story because I had written a piece in the New York Times. And ironically enough, it was about sandwiches <laughs> and kind of the sandwiches of my childhood uh, growing up um, on the East Coast. And Peter Workman of Workman Publishing read that piece in the New York Times Magazine and called me up the next day and said, would you like to have lunch? This is Peter Workman. And of course, I nearly fell off the, <laughs> my chair. I, I you know, you only just say yes to that, so right. off I go to lunch. And he said, so I love your writing. What book have you always wanted to write? Wow. And, I, I mean, it was really like a fairy tale. And stupidly, I said, I don't want to write a book. <laughs> well, what did and you he, tell him? he looked right at me, and he said, think again. That's the wrong answer. Right. And I, I thought about it for one split second, and I said, you're right. Okay, I do want to write a book. And I want to write a book about wine. And he said, wine? But you're a food writer. I thought you were going to say some region in the world about food. And I said, yeah, I, I know. But, you know, it, wine is, it, there isn't a, a really good basic wine book. Um, and he said, Would you, could you have it ready in a year? I said, absolutely. And oh, 10 years uh -oh. later, it was done. Uh-oh. <laughs> wow, that... that... That he had a major influence, and, and a nice add to that story is um, that are you still with Workman Publishing? Yes, uh, yes, they are a terrific publisher, and they're it's really 15, an 16 years later, right? Publisher, yeah. yes, they're they're old fashioned in the sense that they really, um, you know, they really act like like your coach, and uh, they really sort of bring up, raise up their writers and nurture them. And, and they're also just brilliant marketers and uh, designers, and, and the way they think about books is, is fantastic. All right, so let's talk about two things. Let's talk about the process, 
when you started writing the book, you know, what the process was. You right. probably got into some kind of... But before that, you said to Peter, or Peter said to you, can you write the book in a year? We, you, you know, I think we've said it twice, maybe three times. It took 10 years to write the book. W what happened after a year when Peter said, okay, where's my script? Yeah, he said, uh, he called me up and he said, is it done? And I said, <laughs> oh, no. Boy. And he said, are you in your pajamas? And I said, no, Peter, I promise you, I am writing this book. And every year he would call me and he would say, just tell me you're not hanging out in your pajamas. And I would say, no, 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 I am working on this book. Right. But it's a bigger project than you and I envisioned, because what he and I had envisioned was actually a very simple, short primer. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that uh, that 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 I was really mapping out the entire world of wine. Right. Um, and that it was going to be a big book. So, um, so yeah. let's talk about the process. So now you have that idea. It's not going to be like a Hugh Johnson vest pocket book. It's now going to be a big book. You realize that. So you get into the process, I guess, of travel, tasting, regions, writings. You know, take me through how it started coming together. Was there any organization to it, or you just started writing yeah. about different things and connecting them? Yeah, you, you kind of cannot just start writing uh, in, in, with something that size. I mean, we had, you know, you're, you're talking about um, 8,000 manuscript pages, uh, a, a, you know, trying to figure out pretty soon, if you start writing that way, then you, you realize, you know, oh, my God, here you are deep somewhere in Spain, and you're saying to yourself, now, should I explain Tannen? Wait a minute. Maybe Tannen was in the Napa Valley chapter. Right. Wait a minute. Maybe Tannen is in the Bordeaux chapter. What did I say about Tannen, right? Wow. It's a huge organizational job. Right. So part of what a writer has to do, and in fact, I feel like the first three or four months, uh, what I did was just agonize over how big is this elephant, how big is this elephant? Where does the trunk go? Where's the tail? How big are the ears relative to the body? How long right? did it take to figure out how big it was? Yeah, it took months, months to figure out. Because in wine, you're also trying to figure out the relative uh, importance of things. Like, you know, how important is Chianti Classico compared to uh, um, Brunello. Sonoma Chardonnay? Oh, okay. Right? Right. I mean, if Sonoma Chardonnay got four paragraphs, should Chianti Classico get 20? Should it get two? I mean, it's really quite, you're having to make some very big judgments about the importance of various uh, uh, places in right. the world and various types of wine. Well, I did some casual analytics, and the French section yielded the most pages. Um, and I guess that makes sense. Italy and the U.S. were right up there um, with Spain and the other countries. So I think, you know, the attention went obviously towards the areas, you know, that had the most wines or the most interesting wines. And, and you were drawn there, I, I would guess, right? Some of it is that. Some of it is that 
the way we think about wine, the whole concept that a wine it tastes the way it does because of its place, because of the place where the grapes were grown. Right. That is a that concept is a monastic meaning from monasteries, from monks, a monastic French concept. Right. And uh, so France. Uh, needs a, some space because France provides us with the, in a sense, the philosophic underpinnings of how wine works. More than anywhere else? Probably more than anywhere right. else. It also was the underpinnings of, of classification systems. There's a lot of things that happened over the centuries in France that were adopted by other parts of the, the world, including right. how to think about great wine. Um, so so France uh, is uh, requ- required a little bit more space. Right. So besides the fact that there were a lot of regions and wines, there was just a lot more information and history and, and things to write about. Exactly. Um, which, which makes total sense. Um, so in the process, you talk about tasting literally thousands and thousands of wines. So in writing the book, you can't write the book unless you're tasting, right? Right. So you're tasting the first edition, took 10 years. You're tasting, in the end, about how many wines to put that book together? I usually taste about 3,000 wines a year. Okay. So a book is about a 30,000 wine uh, process. You know that's crazy, right? No, no, that's no, about no. as much as anybody or anyone probably has tasted. You, you know, you're probably the Tom Brady of wine tasters in a way. Some woman has to do it, Sam. I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm ha- so you taste wines. Is there a system? Uh, yes. And um, even right now, I mean, we're going to taste some wines l- later here today in my offices. And um, so we, uh, we sit down at a table. We always use the same uh, glasses. Um, we, we don't do other things when we're tasting. We really concentrate. Um, it's, I'm usually tasting with a couple of other people, one of whom is my assistant, who has right. a great palate. And um, and we talk about the wines one by one. We talk about them, and I write every note by hand. I, I still cannot, for the life of me, take notes. I mean, of course, I'm on a computer all day long, but I cannot take notes. You're more comfortable longhand. Yeah, when I, I, I when I write that. about wine, I am. I get that totally. Maybe maybe our kids wouldn't, but I, I totally get that. Now, when you're tasting, you're tasting. If you're doing Spanish wines, you're not going to jump around. You're going to taste Spanish wines. You're not going to do a few bottles of Napa, Spanish, and French, or do you do that? Yeah, so sometimes uh, it's good to sort of slice, and in fact, it's good to do this at home when you're learning about wine. It's good to sort of slice and dice the world up a few different ways. So sometimes we would taste, let's say... Uh, Sauvignon Blancs from South Africa, right. and we would just focus on that. But then every now and then we'll taste Sauvignon Blancs from around the world. So now we're looking at how does South Africa compare to New Zealand, compare to California, compare to uh, the Loire Valley of France. Um, 
So there are, and sometimes we taste conceptually, meaning um, wines that are good for summer picnics, right? right. That could be wines from right. anywhere in the world that are light and fresh and lively. Um, so there's, it, it's actually good to structure tastings in a couple of different ways. Right. But doing it by geography is always a, a shoe-in of a good organizational way. Right. So tell my listeners, if my listeners want to grab a few bottles of wine and they want to explore, how should they taste? You mentioned that you use the same glasses. Mm-hmm. Um, walk me I through think- this. I, I, I know... Smell and sniffing is important. You know, you know. Give me the the primer guide to what we should do when we open a bottle to appreciate. Right. right. I think that you know, from a mechanical standpoint, the idea of making sure you swirl, making sure you smell, are really important. Everyone, I think, pretty much knows that. Well, let's um, go back. You swirl the wine because you want to get air and oxygen to open it up, correct? That's right. and Because uh, it's, it's closed like, in the bottle. You want to... Right. It's like chopping garlic, right? When you chop garlic, you expose up. all those surfaces to air, and you can smell the garlic better. Well, when you swirl a wine, you expose it to air, and literally... Uh, it, it, what happens is it's called volatilizing the aromas. It makes the aromas more available to be smelled. Um, so, yes. So you volatize, and then you sniff. And, you, and then you smell. Just uh, smell, as we all know, is part of taste. Well, the next point I'm going to make, Stay though, on I'm, smell for a second. Don't, okay. Don't forget your next point that you're going to make. You made a good point. You taste what you smell when people what's the best way for people to smell a wine people see other people you know shoving their nose in a glass smelling the cork what what's the best way to the best way is to if you imagine um a dog trying to smell a piece of meat on the kitchen counter right right the dog does not take one big inhale you could actually see the dog's nose move, right? right? It'll sniff, 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 sniff real rapidly. And that is the best way to smell. So um, you do have to put your nose a little bit in the glass. Okay. I mean, you can't, can't smell from afar. You right. can't do any what I call dainty sniffing. You've got to really there. get your nose in there. If okay. you have a big nose, this is good. You're, okay. You know, you should be a wine taster. And, uh, and then take a lot of rapid, quick sniffs. And then, here's the important thing, think about things. Don't just sniff and let your mind go blank. Start thinking about, is this fruity? Does this smell like something outdoors, like grass? Does this smell like, I don't know, a different, some kind of ice cream? Give yourself some ideas to think about, because otherwise you'll never be able to name that smell. So think about descriptors. Right. Think about okay. things that it smells like or reminds you of, and that will help you identify that wine and when you taste it, too, right? Uh, yes and no. Interestingly oh. enough, even though wine and food are so similar in many ways, there are a few key ways in which they are very different, and this is one of them. In food... 
flavor always follows aroma. So if you smell a green bell pepper, you are 100% sure you are going to taste a green bell pepper. Right. Because flavor always follows from aroma in food. But in wine, it doesn't always. In wine, you could smell, I don't know, something that smells like... Uh, Licorice? Pears or kiwis or okay. something. And then you taste it, taste the wine, and it tastes like grass. I mean, it's, it's an astounding miracle in wine that it is so complex that aromatically you could be on a very different path than you are on when you taste the wine. That's not a bad sign, by the way. That's right. Most of the great wines of the world do that. So when people smell and they pick something up and they don't pick it up on the taste, that's traditional. That's not bad. Right. right. A lot that's of wines. That's the way can, it is. Right. Yep. Don't equate it to food and all of that. Right. So a chicken and egg question on the book. Did you have to taste a lot of wines to, dis- to really get the content going? Or you were getting content going and tasting wines. I mean, at some point you needed to fill the book up with wines from regions, correct? Right. So we, we have a, a, a good, simple way of filing all of our tasting notes. And you're right. I mean, I had already been writing about wine for 10 years for magazines right. before I started the Wine Bible. So I already had 10 good years of tasting and traveling and research experience before I tackled the book. Um, because of a book of that nature, you, you, you kind of, you know, you can't pick up a baseball and kind of go to the World Series, right? right. You've got to be out there practicing. Right. And I, I don't mean to suggest that the Wine Bible is the World Series, but just simply that it was a professional attempt, and if I was a complete beginner, I don't think I could have done it. Right. So the, the tasting part was really, you, you, after writing for many years, it was time to get down to tasting. Right. And really create the content. So even though you eventually settled in Napa, um, the book takes a very global view of wine. I mean, the majority of the book is is a very global book. Um, You didn't feel that you had to write a book about American wines, right? You felt after everything you did and tasted, you couldn't hold back. You wanted to talk about everything. Yes, because I think one of the unique uh, joys of... American wine culture is that we go into any wine shop, I'm sure this is so true in New York, go into any wine shop and look at all these choices, right? It's incredible. You could have something from Spain and then, or something from Australia, Chile, France, whatever, sort of the world is our oyster in a way. And in Europe, that's not that way. You know, if you're in Florence and you go into a wine shop, you're going to just see Tuscan wines. You're not going to see Argentinian wines. Is that typical of most of Europe? In France, you'll find traditionally French, Spain, Spanish, Italy, Italian. That's what you're saying? Exactly. So it's... uh, And I wanted to really understand the world. I didn't want to understand... Uh, just the U.S. I wanted to see how the whole world of wine fit together. 
Right. So let's talk about, it took you about 10 years to write the first edition and not easily to update it to a second edition. Very recently, it took an additional four years. So it took about 14 years. Let's talk about at this point, talk to me about emerging and hot global wines and regions. You know, at this point, you have Bordeaux, Burgundy, Tuscany. There's a lot of traditional Napa wines. Tell me what's going on of late that has emerged, is emerging, that's hot, that excites you. Yeah. Some of the most emerging places are what I call new old regions. A place like Mexico is a new old region, right? There is wine there in the 16, in the 1500s. And now in the Guadalupe Valley of Mexico, just sort of south of San Diego, uh, there's a whole new revived uh, wine industry. Places in Central Europe, Hungary, Slovenia, uh, have fantastic uh, emerging uh, wine regions that are, of course, thousands of years old. Right. Uh, the new, new regions, the really new regions, are uh, China and, to a lesser extent, India. Um, but China is uh, uh, unbelievable. I just went uh, last year to Ningxia, one of the top wine regions that is on the edge of the Gobi Desert, wow. right near Mongolia. I mean, it's it's astounding. Does it have you, does it have the climate, you know, yeah, similar dry, to either Napa or dry, windy, desert-like climate? So they obviously have to bring in irrigation. But in a sense, like what are uh, they growing there? Parallel would be Israel. Okay, um, Israel ha- has been very successful uh, growing grapes in very, as has California, actually, right. and Australia, in very dry circumstances. Right. Um, in China, what are they finding? There's indigenous grapes, or they're planting Cabernet or Pinot Noir? What, what are they growing or trying to grow there? Yeah, they're mostly planting Cabernet. Okay. China really loves uh uh, red wine, um, somewhat more than white. There is some Chardonnay, but probably the best wines are Cabernet. Right. And um, there, there's not really thought to be uh, indigenous grapes. Right, I didn't um, think these so. These are grapes brought in. Right. Now go back to Mexico. What are they growing in Mexico? Uh, Mexico grows a whole <laughs> group of both um, Spanish... Italian uh, and uh, French varieties. I mean, Mexico has the original uh, grapes that were brought in were brought by Spanish conquistadors and and explorers in the 1500s. But over the years, lots of Europeans have gone to a into Mexico and then either up into the United States or down into South America. Right. So Mexico has grows just about everything from Italian, you know, Barbera and Nebbiolo to French Cabernet. Right. Um, I guess if you compare it to Napa Sonoma, which is predominantly Cabernet and Chardonnay, they're growing more varietals. Would you say that? 
Uh, no, no. Well, California grows an enormous number of varieties. No, I know there they are. do, but they they bottle. I mean, the amount of acreage, you know, is dedicated. I think towards Cabernet, Merlot, Chardonnay. I, I know a lot of winemakers are doing some interesting plantings um, in Mexico. I guess what I'm saying is, is there any one predominant grape oh, that's growing more than others? Um, you know, I would say uh, most people have had success with red wines uh, more so than white. Right. But but beyond that, I don't think there's one clear uh, grape variety that is absolutely more important than all others. Right. Now, jump to domestic. Let's talk about interesting, hot, emerging domestic wines. I think we touched it a little because I think in California there's more than just Cab and Merlot and um, Chardonnay. Tell me, are there other interesting regions around the country, wines, that have caught your attention? Yeah, I think um, the the wines of both Washington State and Oregon, the Pacific Northwest is just on fire. Right. I mean, the number of really high-quality Pinot Noirs from Oregon or high-quality Cabernets and Syrahs from Washington State is, is astounding. New York State, where you are, is... Uh, Finger Lakes. Very well, especially in the Finger Lake right. region. Right. Um, and then I think 49 or 50 states are making wine. I mean, there's wine in New Mexico, Arizona, um, everywhere, which, which is interesting. But I think the Pinot Noir in Oregon is hot. I think there are a lot more people making wine there. And I agree with you in Washington. There used to be the Quilceta Creeks and Leonetti's. Now a lot of people are jumping jumping into the game, and you're seeing a lot more wine there. Um, any anything? What about in Napa and Sonoma? Anything going on there of interest? Well, you know, the in our we, as Americans, we like new things, right? What's new? What's right. hot? What's trendy? But the truth is <clears throat> that wine. Is, is not really about trends because it's agriculture, and agriculture takes a long, long time. So uh, for me, many of the great classic wine regions like Napa and Sonoma are better than they've ever been, and it would be a shame to uh, not you know, taste those wines a lot because right. Actually, the Pinot Noirs coming out of Sonoma, the Cabernets coming out of Napa Valley right now are, are stunning. They're just on top of their game, and they've had a lot of practice at this point. Do you think there's been some change in the way the wines have been made? The Colt California Cabernets of the 90s and 2000s, they were very big, unctuous wines. People talk about more restraint and finesse. Do you see any changes in the way wine has been made in California, Pinot Noirs? I think, uh, I think the answer is yes, and especially with Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, uh, winemakers have many of the top, if not most of the top, Pinot Noir winemakers now in California and throughout the Pacific Northwest have said, you know, we, we, are, we are devoted to elegance. 
Right. And, and that's because Pinot Noir, if you, if you don't make it in an elegant way, actually, if you try and be heavy-handed with it, it just shuts down and right. tastes like uh, flat Coke. Right. I mean, it tastes awful. It's very bright, Dr. Peppery, cherry, cokey. I, I agree right. with you. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. And with Cabernet, I think winemakers are now uh, edging up on that idea, too. They are saying to themselves, you know, uh, the, the steps toward elegance are very important in the maturation of a wine industry. But I still think there's a market and an audience that expects from California a certain big-type wine. And I think there are makers that continue to make it, and there are other growers and makers that are, you know, becoming more restrained. Oh, Um, yeah. I I think there's the whole gamut. Now, we do the show from the heart of Bushwick, Brooklyn, at a place called Roberta's. Bushwick, Williamsburg, this whole area is a hipster area. There is a huge natural wine movement going on at bars, on wine lists, in restaurants, in the stores. Give me your take on natural wines, organic wines, biodynamic wines. Are you seeing more of them? Are you seeing a trend? What do you think? There are, um, there are many, many, uh, in the U.S. anyway, many, many uh, wines made from organically grown grapes. Right. And they don't always say that, uh, but the movement to sustainable viticulture is is huge. It's just huge. The practice. Uh, they want to practice that anyway, whether they're yeah. advertising it or not. Exactly. For many people, they feel that this should not be used as a marketing uh, uh, part of their marketing plan, that it's good stewardship of the land, period. And he- so they want to do it. Um, and biodynamics as well. Biodynamics is like, you know, uber uh, organics in a sense. Right. Um, and uh, natural wine, that whole concept bothers me a little bit. A little too because, wide. Because, well, fine, good wine. Uh, I, uh, natural wine, we should say, we should say, has no definition. Right. No one really knows what natural wine means, and it means slightly different things to different people. Right. Um, so that bothers me because I, I, I like I like things to be <laughs> knowable. Right. Uh, I, I agree with you. It's the same thing with food. Just because somebody slaps natural on a food doesn't mean there's any value right. to that. Right. And with wines. Um, but I think a lot of the, the French and some of the Italian natural wines, they're going out of their way to be natural and raw and you know, all kinds of things. You see that more here. I want to ask you one more thing, then we're going to take a break, and I want to subject you to our wine list, which is a bunch of questions. I'm anxious to hear your answers. Tell me how you think social media has changed wine. Tell me how you use it. Is it important to you? Because it's something that's very prominent now that really wasn't around five years ago the way it is now, ten years ago. So right. what's your take on social media? I think it's important and terrific, and one of the things that we know is that uh, a lot of people now in, get most of their 
wine information from wine recommendations via their friends on social media. Right. We, we do quite a bit of social media where the Wine Bible, Karen McNeil, is on Facebook, we're on Twitter. You have an e-letter, Instagram. a blog called Wine Speed, right? Yep, and we, we have our fantastic uh, digital newsletter called Wine Speed. Right. It's free, so we invite all your listeners to uh, give everyone the. Uh, how do they sign up? Say that again. Uh, all you have to do is go to winespeed.com. Okay. So W I N E S P E E D. So, fairly and squarely, if you want to tap into Karen's vast knowledge 15 years of you know writing over a thousand pages that that uh blog is a pretty easy way to get involved do you feel that social media has democratized wine more i mean you mentioned peer-to-peer where people talk but in the old days there were a couple of critics and that's what everybody went by now you can get wine information all over the place do you see it that way uh, yes and no. Uh, I think for, uh, especially for people under 50, um, social media is um, hugely uh, important, and it has sort of democratized wine, if to use your word. Right. Um, for certain uh, collectors, though, for, for people who are buying the most expensive wines, who are collecting you know, second and third growth and sometimes first growth Bordeaux who are spending $600 a bottle on wine, those people are not getting their recommendations off social media. Right. Those those people are still relying on a handful of very good critics. Right. So it it varies, I guess, by the type of wine person you are, age. A lot of things play into it, but it is available. Um, All right, so we're going to take a quick break. We've been talking to Karen McNeil, author of The Wine Bible. Also, go to her uh, blog, winespeed.com. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with Karen in a minute or so. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. 
The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Okay, we're back. We're back with Karen McNeil. Karen is the author of The Wine Bible. We are now going to subject Karen to our wine list. Karen, we're going to ask you a bunch of questions, and let's get your take on it. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? What? Forget about the tastings in the books. What have you been drinking more often than not? last few weeks, month? I have been drinking a huge amount of Pinot Noir uh, and um, from both California and Oregon uh, and it is uh, phenomenal. I mean, I, I cannot speak highly enough about it. So I guess the question warrants why. Is it you're catching up on it? It's a good time of the year to you know, why, why are you grabbing those? I think because Pinot Noir is very satisfying as a red wine. Yes. Um, because it, it is red. But, um, but also it is, um, it's elegant and light enough that it doesn't sort of hit you over the head with power. It's a very intriguing grape variety, and it's a, it's a kind of cerebral uh, variety. It makes you think about it a lot. And I, I guess I'm a thinking person. I, I like that. I, I agree on all of that. It's 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 a special grape in that sense. It's hard to vint. It's very finicky. Um, it does have all those characters that you described. Do you have? And and I don't know if this boxes you into a corner. Are there a couple of winemakers that you're really enjoying right now? Yeah, you know, I I love the Pinot Noirs. I could drink them all day from Fela, which is hard to pronounce. F A I L L A. Yes, F A I L L A. Okay. Beautifully elegant Pinot Noirs. Same with William Selium is another great Pinot Noir producer. Um Two words, William, like William right. the man's name, and Selyum, S-E-L-Y-E-M. Give me uh, an Oregon Pinot or two that you're loving. Oh, the best Oregon Pinot is grown by, is made, in my opinion, by this wonderful small farm family. In fact, the name of the Pinot Noir is called Big Table Farm. I've and they really are a farm in Oregon, and uh, just sensational Pinot Noirs. I, I've had it, and it's delicious, and it's, to tell you how right you are and how good it is, it's in some of the best restaurants in the city. It's just a yeah, very delicious great. and cool wine for them to carry. All right, those are great suggestions. Tell me your favorite wine and food pairing, and I always tell my guess you can't say champagne and oysters so go Shoot. beyond that Shoot. oh man i was gonna say champagne and potato chips all right so i'm gonna take that but i'm gonna force you to another one okay give me a second choice a second choice i know uh, a really great steak like really dry aged really 
you know, crusty on the outside and saying. rare on the inside, and Napa Valley Cabernet. I agree with that 100%. And I think if you go to the better steakhouses in New York and Napa in Chicago, there's always a list of great Napa wines to accommodate them because I think you hit it on the nose. Now, just go back for a second. Are you sitting around the house in your pajamas watching TV <laughs> with a cracked bottle of champagne and a big uh, bag of potato chips? Is that what well, you're alluding to? Well, I have to, to? tell you, I do, Sam, drink a glass of champagne or sparkling wine every single night of my life. I, I consider it indispensable to motherhood and the source of all patience. I I agree. We're not drinking enough sparkling wine, and you are charging. You're in charge of that charge. All right. Yeah. So next question. And I normally it's, it's one or two answers, but I think there's a special edition here. The question is your favorite wine restaurant and our bar. So what I want you to do is I want you to give me the Napa Sonoma Valley version. And then give me something outside of there, whether it's through your travels in New York or Europe. So give me your favorite wine, restaurant, and or bar by you and then outside of there. Right. In the Napa Valley, it would be uh, Press, okay. which is just like Bench Press, P-R-E-S-S. It, it's actually a reference to a grape press. Right. And they have probably one of the best wine lists, really, and terrific sommelier uh, couple, husband and wife team. Uh, and I always just say to them, bring me something fascinating, and they always do. Um, and they also have killer cocktails, I have to say, really great cocktails. Usually and goes hand in hand. all the time. So whether you're sitting at the bar, they'll serve you some great stuff, or whether you're sitting down and having a meal, oh, they'll yeah. bring you a great bottle. So that's yep. press has been around for a while. That's yep. a great pick. Now, does anything resonate with you outside Europe that you've been to or New York? Let me think. You know, um, I have to uh, say that I'm probably not as up on New York as you are these days. Um, but one of the things I love in, just absolutely love in Europe, is um, these sort of seaside taverns. And right. you see them along the coast of Spain, uh, of course, all along the coast of Italy. This past uh, summer, I was in uh, Croatia and for the first time drank quite a bit of Croatian wine. These beautiful, sitting in nondescript, no one would ever know the, even the names of these restaurants, but they're always by the sea. The fish is incredibly fresh. Right. And a bottle of cold white wine. Oh, man, I could do that. So that, that's a perfect example of place, not the place. Just go to a place like that, to the seaside, to a nice seaside bar, get some fresh fish, get some wine, and you're in your glory. Exactly. I, I totally agree with that. All right. Now, all-time favorite wine. If you can't peg one, give me a couple, but there has to be something that you tasted that was just, oh, wow, you still remember, and... Maybe a second one if, if it's too tough. So what's your favorite all-time wine? Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, if I was going to be um, uh, 
clever about it. I would say, well, I hope I haven't tasted it yet. Okay. Um, First but, time um, anyone has said that. You know, I have a lot of. I'm lucky. I get to taste a lot of great wine. That's why it's a tough question for you. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, any wine that makes you stop in your tracks and really think about it, and, and you know, I'm a big believer, of course, in writing down your impressions, and so when I write down things like, you know, OMG, oh my God, right. <laughs> I know that I'm in the presence of uh, something really good, because usually I would be writing a long, you know, essay kind right. of note. But some wines, you, you, they're just so good. You, all you can do is write a superlative like that. Right. Okay. So you dodge the answer. I'll, yep. I'll let you get away. But I, I, I get the answer because there's an OMG in France. There's an OMG in Napa. Right. There's an OMG in Sonoma. And I think somebody who does what you've been doing, it really is hard to say, you know, a 61 Petrus or whatever. Right. Um, so we'll let you go on that. All right. My listeners love this question, and you probably can answer it. You may have to think. I ask everyone to tell me the best wine they could recommend, 15 bucks or under, a red and a white. Now, you may not, if you can't get specific, you know, give me the type of wine. Like, I'll give you a hint. Muscadet on the white side is a very drinkable wine, and it's not expensive. Right. So give right. me a couple of reasonable priced wines, a red and a white. Right. We just tasted in a tasting the other day a um, Chateau Saint-Michel dry Riesling from Washington State. Great winemaker. was just, you know, like $12 or okay. so. That's a and, great recommendation. You know, I, for me, it was the perfect, what I call, cooking wine. Not the wine that you put in the right. food, but you drink while you're standing in the kitchen cooking. Right. That, that's a uh, because it's you know it's just light and airy and delicious and dry and uh, priced right. So right? red red is always tougher. Red is tougher. You got to come up with one though. Huh? Okay. Yeah. I I'm going to go for a place then. Okay. One. And I would say. Um, a a red from uh, Campo de Borjas in Spain. There are a couple of appellations in Spain that are in north central Spain. One is called Campo de Borjas. Spell for me. C A M P O. Okay. New word D E. Right. New word B O R J A. Campo de Borja. De Borja. Okay. And uh, old vine Grenache and old vine Tempranillo, and just delicious, rich, uh, juicy wines for about fourteen, fifteen dollars. That is about as good a recommendation as anyone could give. I could assure you that a lot of my listeners are not aware of that region. Probably even haven't tried some Grenaches, and that's a great suggestion. So I post all this stuff on our site so, you know, our listeners can go back. All right, last question. You've been writing for a long time. Who do you look at, and let's stay in the wine category, as a favorite or admired wine writers? Yeah, you know, uh, this is probably awful to say, but when I <laughs> started writing the Wine Bible... 
I made it a point to not read other wine writers because, in all honesty, I was afraid that they would sway my own opinion of a wine. I agree. And I, I really felt that I needed, I needed to kind of be, uh, to kind of shelter myself from other people's opinions so that I didn't inadvertently um, just adopt uh, everyone else's thinking. All right, so, so um, go ahead. There are a number of writers whose writing I, in general, admire. I mean, the you... great, the great journalist of wine journalist of our time, I think, is Hugh Johnson. Okay. In in uh, Great Britain, who writes beautifully about wine. I agree. Um, uh, but in terms of critics, I, I mean, I, I know Bob Parker personally. I really like his writing. I like Antonio Galloni's writing. I love Jancis Robinson. But I don't read any of them all the time. Those, those are all good ones, and they're all very much out there and available for everyone else to read. Yeah. And coming from you, those are good recommendations. All right, so that's the end of our wine list. You did good, kid. You definitely, uh, you definitely pointed us into some uh, terrific directions. All right, Thank we're, we're going to wrap the show up. Karen, usually we do a thing in studio called the weekly wine sip where we taste wine, but it's hard to do it when the guest is on the phone. So hopefully down the road, you and I will meet somewhere and we'll make up this weekly wine sip. All right? Perfect. Yep, perfect. All right, so in closing, if you have a question, a wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, at Twitter at Ben Ruby, and at Instagram at S Ben Ruby. Um, finally, on our wine calendar, we have an event coming up called Riesling Fire in New York. It's the greatest celebration of German wine on earth. It is coming to New York February 17th and 18th. Go to RieslingFire.com. That's R-I-E-S-L-I-N-G-F-E-I-E-R. Riesling the word and fire, which is fair for German. RieslingFire.com. For more info on tasting, seminars, and dinners, we want to thank our guest, Karen McNeil, author of the wine book, The Wine Bible. It's in its second edition. Karen, it's available at Amazon and all bookstores everywhere? All bookstores everywhere and Amazon, too. Okay. And from us, if you want a signed copy, KarenMcNeil.com. All right, so let's talk about if people want to get involved with your stuff. There's KarenMcNeil.com. For a signed copy of the Wine Bible or, uh, again, complimentary to all of your listeners. They can get our free uh, digital newsletter. It's very fast, and it's and that's its name. It's called Wine, Wine Speed. Speed. Okay, and that's winespeed.com, right? Right. All right. Anything else? That's about it. All for right. Us. We're just uh, out here tasting, working hard. Not too bad. All right. Thanks to our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Thank you again, Karen. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.